I understand deeply what you were saying because I have so often felt like I matter not at all in this space of what we do. Mm-hmm. I Please don't ever let me hear you say that you are not necessary uh, because that's what they want us to think. That's what we, the system is built for us to feel. And it is untrue. It is untrue. It would be rickety and tired without us. It would be stale. So that being said, um, Amen. I, uh, I'm really teary. I'm sorry. Don't apologize. It's been, it's, it's, um, yeah, no, don't apologize because I think that I had to, I spent so much time hustling and working and not being present that I was forced into a space where I had to reckon with those feelings and I have been ignoring them to my own detriment for years and I suffer from an anxiety disorder and so much of what the ways that I was dealing with that were to run from the feelings the feelings of I don't fit here um just by myself working I don't I don't fit here um and so what was done what was processed had to be processed. And I have made it to the other side of that thinking. Um, but it's like what they say about what they say about uh, addiction and what my family members say about, you know, coming out. You have to do these things for yourself and it won't work. It won't stick. Nothing will stick. And so I had to confront that with myself. And it produced, I wrote so much out of that anger, out of that pain, um, that I'm, you know, I'm not, I don't want to say I'm grateful for the suffering in a way that, I'm, that is psychologically unhealthy, but in a, in a way that is philosophical. I embrace that suffering and I was forced to realize how many people have my back. And that, I don't have words for that, for that lesson. Like, I was so profoundly lonely before we went into this pandemic and then was even more so throughout because I felt isolated. I felt like I'm on this road. I am an outlier. I'm over here. It's just, just me financially, conceptually, in the orchestra. Um, And so I really felt the weight of what I had been denying. Um, And so, like I said, that work had to happen, and I think it had to happen then. And I'm just grateful that it, it, it wasn't a situation where I was forced to deal with it in a, in a, as a reaction to something terrible happening, you know, like I, 
had a breakdown. You know, I had a breakdown in college and I was just so happy that I found my tribe during the time and in finding that love and in finding that unconditional love. Um, I was able to see my own value. I'm Anika Noni Rose, and this is Being Seen, an in-depth exploration of culture's role in resolving the tensions between how we are seen and how we see ourselves. Focused on Black women, Being Seen is a space to explore culture with leading artists, writers, activists, and entertainers. If we create nuanced and accurate cultural portrayals of identity and experience, we have an opportunity to reduce stigma and change perception, impacting everything from HIV to institutional inequity. Movement is a freedom, a community. It is a relationship between time and space, allowing us to slip between things, different parts of ourselves and what we wish to inhabit. In occupying more, we expand. With movement comes the future, the ability to grow, try something new, adapt and become. There is so much power in how we move. And that is why so many have tried to deny the movement of women, black women in particular. But when we move, and specifically when we move together, there is so much possibility. And we see this in the echoes of our history. The way that black women have moved themselves, their families, and their communities towards and through some of the most powerful change, innovation, and evolution this country and so many others have ever seen. Few organizations have embodied movement as powerfully in both literal and metaphorical ways as the WMBA. In the summer of 2016, before anyone took a knee, the women of the Minnesota Lynx covered their bodies in a call for justice as they stepped on the court. Even before that, and since, their fight for justice is unparalleled by any other major sports league. They have fought for and against everything from reproductive rights to wrongful incarceration. They have shown us what's possible for women in movement together. Asia Wilson was drafted to the WNBA in 2018 when she was also named Rookie of the Year. She is the legacy of so many women who have moved into and through spaces before her and is now planting seeds for all the women who will come behind. The freedom to move has always been one that has been weaponized against Black people, particularly Black women, both formally but also informally from the ways in which the women of the Great Migration were prevented from living in certain neighborhoods to the lack of access, power, and position in many careers today. You've talked about that in your own life in many ways from your grandmother having to walk the perimeter of a campus instead of being able to cross over to get where she needed to go, to your own experience of a birthday party when you were young. Can you talk a little bit about that and how it's affected the way you think about the spaces 
we do or do not have access to. Yes, uh, it's actually crazy because that story about my grandmother, it was actually, my mom told me way before that my my school was revealing a statue of myself. And she said, Asia, where your statue is now, your grandmother couldn't even walk on that street. And I'm like, huh? Like, it just didn't make sense to me until I started to really dissect that that was just one way, but it's something that we live every single day. I, I think us as Black women often have to hide who we really are just to be able to just hopefully get that job interview or hopefully get this sponsorship. And it's like we we constantly getting swept underneath the rug and every single day we're bringing our best work and we put our best foot forward and we're doing and we're gorgeous while doing it. And that right there is something that the way that I move and understanding that I am a black woman in the sports world, that I have a voice, that I have a platform, that I have a following of people that look just like me that want to be me. And that's what helps me move and continue to move forward in a classy, uplifting way because I'm like, someone out there loves me for who I am. Um, And it could be that next young little girl that wants to be Asia Wilson because she sees that statue and she sees me. And I'm like, that's why I need to move with my chin up so my crown doesn't tilt. Like that is that, that's how I get that. That's where it really comes from. And And I didn't know that back in that moment when my grandmother couldn't cross that street, she was planting seeds for me back then. She wanted me to be able to walk across that street, to have a statue on that street. And that's what helps me move, is knowing that I can plant seeds for the next generation to be able to look at places where they may not be welcomed and laugh and say, oh, I'm still walking in here because I, I deserve to be here. And that's honestly how I just love to move in that direction. Lady Jess is an extraordinary musician and artistic director whose accomplishments are too many to list here, but whose work is so expansive and far-reaching, it refuses to be defined by any one genre or format. She is constantly expanding what she asks of herself and her practice, and in doing so, challenges us to do the same. So it thrills me to see you, specifically... And this episode is focused on exploring and embodying the space of movement, um, a word which, of course, has a very specific meaning in the music world. But here we are mostly thinking about the ability to move, to um, transition between and within spaces. Historically, movement itself has been a powerful tool, both for the oppressors and the oppressed, um, particularly in this country. So how do you think about movement as a metaphor in your life and in your music where you move within many different genres all the time, but you also have a very clear social movement that is part of your being? Which spaces do you move between and and what has that taught you? Mm -hmm. Um, Moving between spaces I think is at the core of my work, quite honestly, Um, because a strength that I have that was not always presented to me as a strength was the ability to move between genres, to move between performance practices. I once played a tango orchestra gig at the Kennedy Center and then got on a bus back to New York and played a Baroque masterclass with Cynthia Roberts, who Hmm. runs the historical performance program at Juilliard. 
And these things were done within a day of each other. (laughs) And so the ability to adjust quickly and in a way that is open is how I move through gigs. It's how I move. Um, It's my way of networking. I am as extroverted as I have to be, but I am very introverted as well. And so, the yeah, so you understand. The classic way of networking, especially as it was taught to me in school, never sat right with me. It never felt organic. It never felt natural. And so for me, this movement between genres, the ability to play a complete concerto with orchestra and also tour with Beyonce and do a three-hour choreographed show with an electric violin, like, that is, that's the answer for me. That is how I, that movement between those spaces is how I show up as my most authentic self because it represents my exposure to the arts growing up. Um, You know, I, I mentioned earlier my father being a jazz musician, I also grew up in a very religious household, so we were not, we were discouraged from listening to a lot of music with words, with lyrics that could like affect us and make an already soulful Jess want to go out and date boys. Um, And so for us, experimenting around that and, and experimenting with world music, classical music, jazz, just trying to find something that I liked that didn't have text that also contributed to the way that I can move back and forth because I feel very at home with those different genres and in those different spaces. And then on top of that, just having to having to be flexible and be open in order to get the check and not having a choice about that will really teach you the value of that flexibility. And when I talk to students that I mentor, when I talk to my students, that's the first thing... I tell them is that you need to know what's popular. You need to know what's going on in the mainstream, regardless of how much you want to play it or don't want to play it. You need to at least have an awareness because in this landscape, it's no longer feasible to simply do one thing coming out of arts conservatory unless you are economically secure in that. It's almost imp- it's still almost impossible. There will always be reasons why we can't. But often the people who know us best, who anchor us, help us to find all the ways that we can. And the training, the work, the discipline, and our knowledge of self helps us to know when we are ready to move. Ashley Everett creates movement for herself and others as well-known choreographer and dancer with artists like Beyonce, Usher, and Sierra. You put that work in. So can you speak to that? And also the fact that your parents were so supportive and so mm-hmm. um, so so behind you all of the time, because that's something that's so helpful and so important. And I don't think sometimes people don't realize just how important that is, whether they think yeah. their child's dream is something that's cotton candy and based on air, or they think it's something they can do. So I threw a lot at you just now, but can you yeah. speak to that? <laughs> Absolutely. I mean, obviously, um, I wouldn't be where I am today without the support 
and the love of my parents. You know, they have always believed in me. They believed in me when I didn't believe in me. Mm. So, you know, and I am so grateful and so blessed to have parents like that because um, it. I'm not saying it wouldn't be possible without that, but it would be harder. Um, so that has been a huge part of my journey, just their support and their their push, you know, even just simply, I'm kind of going off topic a little bit too, but I, my big audition for Beyonce, my mom really was the one who was like, girl, just go. Because I was like, there's so many people, mom, the line's so long. It's like, and I'm going to wait in line for hours. It's freezing outside. It was like November in New York. And um, she's like, just go. You just never know. You never know what will come out of it. And lo and behold, you know, <laughs> look at me now. <laughs> so, um, yeah, I've, I've always been so grateful for the support from my parents. Um, and then I, I kind of, what, what was the other part that you had said before that? <laughs> I was talking about training and how oh, important training. that was to get you to the point where you could stand in that line in November yeah. with hundreds of other people and be the person to stand out. How did, how did that assist you in that space? Yes. Years and years of training. You know, I'm from a small town in Northern California. Chico is um, my hometown. And so I grew up doing ballet, jazz, hip hop. I did competitions and I also did nutcrackers and Cinderella's. You know, I just did it all. I was probably at dance more than I was at school and at home. Um, but I started going to more intense summer intensives and getting um, a broader training, you know, um, program and teachers and stuff. I started going to New York and I went to Dance Theater Harlem and I went to the Kirov Ballet in Washington, D.C. And I went to ABT also in New York. And um, I trained at Debbie Allen before and I did Juilliard summer intensive actually before I turned it down. So I did get that little bit of training there. Um, and I'm I'm so grateful for all of that because that's what really pushed me to move to New York at 16 to really pursue a career. Mm-hmm. And, and then also, I guess that's what allowed me to turn down more training to continue my uh, my my dreams and my my career, the beginning of it at 17. At some point, I think you know when you're ready. You recognize Mm -hmm. when you're ready. We all go into training hoping that we're going to get to the end of it. Yeah. But sometimes, (laughs) yeah, sometimes the ascent starts to happen beforehand and it's on you to know your journey and your body and your space to know if that is the right moment for you and you definitely chose the, the correct moment. Thank you. How within movement can we find space for competition to exist alongside solidarity and unified support? What can we take from the women of the WNBA? This episode is about movement. So let's start by talking a little bit about the people who shaped how you move, uh, both off and on the court. Your parents, your grandparents, coaches, friends... Who taught you how to move and what were their biggest lessons? Wow. Well, I am like a family-oriented woman and I love my family. So I would have to say my mom and my dad and just my everyone in my close village really helped me move growing up. Like they allowed me to be me um, and just have fun while doing it. And then when it came to being on the court, I would have to say all my coaches really, of course, impacted my life. But the biggest has to be Dawn Staley. Uh, she coached me in college and she's just... 
a big role model and she's just done so much for our game and uh, she's someone that has helped mold me into the player that I am today. So I would have to say those people right there really helped me move and still do. (laughs) So I also want to talk to you about what it means to be in movement together, whether that's a political act, a healing practice, or the way that players work together as one on the court. What do you think we can learn about movement and movements from the game of basketball and the way that you interact with the players around you? Yeah, um, I think our league in the WNBA is a huge, I think if you, when you think of the word movement and doing things the right way, I, I would have to say the WNBA is at the forefront of that because we're really a unified front. Like we are really just together in everything that we do. And when we had to go play in the bubble, we still took a stand on what we wanted and what we believed in. And it took all of us. It's 12 teams, 12 women. That's that's it. And we stand by, beside each other, behind each other, no matter what. And I think those that's where you get the most powerful movement of it all, of when you're together as one. And yes, you might have some outliers here and there, but when it's like majority and everyone's bought in into what they believe in and not backing down, I think that's where some of the biggest movements come from. And I think you see that within our league. Like we're badass women. We compete on the court, but... Off the court, if we believe in one thing, we're going to stand behind it and root for each other. And what lies at the heart of this coordination? How do we get into sync? How can we move together? And what is the role of the simple but powerful act that every one of you is part of right now? Listening. Listening to each other. What are we in service of and how can we be in service to each other? When we use the term in movement, um, when, we, when we talk about the work being in, in movement with others as a political act, this is one of the terms that we use about our, the work being in movement. This implies the power, but also the complexity um, of being, pun completely intended, in concert with a group of people in a way that is connected, aligned, and directionally coherent. What can we learn, do you think, from musicians, particularly groups like orchestras, about what it is to listen to each other, to collaborate and ultimately move together? Because I think if we're not listening, if we're in an orchestral environment and we're not listening, and look, I've only played an orchestra in high school, but I know if one person isn't listening, it's discord. Exactly. So what what do you think we can learn about that? I know, and I... I really love this question because there are so many assumptions about orchestras because there's so much that people don't know. And there is such an inexplicable alchemy that happens in a section of players. And part of being a violinist, especially if you're playing in a really big section full of like really great players, you feel like you're flying because there's so much that's not discussed that just happens. And there's a swaying that happens that has to happen. And in the same way that 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 can, that alchemy can be the thing that separates one orchestra from the next, like a, what they call big five. So one of the best, those are the things that separate, like what is, what are considered to be the top orchestras from others is that chemistry 
um, I think about the Philadelphia Orchestra under Ormandy, and there's a term for that. Like I, in school, I learned about the Ormandy strings, and it was just how the strings sounded under this one person's baton because he guided them in such a way that their chemistry, their alchemy was just locked in. Um, and the irony is that within so many of these orchestras is a lot of dysfunction because it is an art form that is dying, that is under threat um, from the mainstream for various reasons, most of them being, you know, it's the, the concept of an orchestra is an old one. It's not current. Um, we're learning more and more about problematic composers and teachers that, you know, no one would ever care who are abu- who have been abusing. So like all of these new things came out in this past year and they're all things that happened so with such frequency because there was no link to the mainstream. You didn't hear about these scandals within orchestras because the mainstream didn't care. However, the less scandal, the more connection an orchestra will have with its community. And then you start to get things like the Ormandy sound and you get like this unified sound. And so that kind of chemistry and alchemy and movement you can study your whole life to get and you will not get if circumstances aren't right, if the people around you aren't listening to one another, if everyone has their own, if you're, you're in an orchestra full of you know, 90, 80, 60 people with very distinct personalities, one theme, one idea, one concept has to link this group for this one show. So the people on stage, despite any dysfunction, despite... Uh, social issues despite not connecting to the community in that moment in the moment of music making that ceases to be important because this alchemy must happen that also happens when the people on stage understand that they are playing in service to the music and in service to the audience and in service to whoever is playing when I play I think of it as I'm in service to myself I'm in service to the listener, I'm in service to the score, to the composer's ideas. So when you take the focus on the individual out of the equation, that's when you get this chemistry. And I think you can copy and paste that throughout the discipline. I mean, you're a classically trained singer, so you understand about blend and how one well-intentioned, talented person can really destroy the blend of a section I think it's that. I think it's appreciating the nuances of each person in the section and understanding those nuances and how each person can play their role to create one beautiful sound, unified sound. I think that all of those things are parallels to... I think you can find parallels to so many things now. And I think that our focus on the individual in popular culture is the direct opposite from that. Mm -hmm. And so I think my... Fisher-Price theory is that we're at an awkward place of tension and strife because there is not this sacrifice for the greater good. There's not this concept of doing things for the whole or just a united citizenry or even, you know, within the culture. 
you know, how we approach homophobia, how we accept everyone, intersectional, like all of that. We're not, I think that the one thing that it all has in common is a lack of thinking of things as what is the end product? What is our one sound? Yeah, for sure. And I think that's kind of like who we are as a league. It's so funny because I feel like last year, our big, my saying was like, we're not new to this, we're true to this. Like, we're not just playing catch up. We've been doing this. But now that it's like a trend or we see these names in hashtags and t-shirts, now everybody want to jump on this bandwagon. And it's just like, no, we've been about this action. But like you said, it's unexpected because people just don't think that, oh, we can follow through with things or, oh, we're good at what we do and we're going to stand by it no matter what. This isn't a trend. This isn't something that we're doing just to get likes, loves, reactions. Like this is stuff that we believe in. And I think that's why it gets brought up in so many conversations. And now it has the attention because we've been about it. Like this is something that we've lived through. This is something that we've been like wanting to spread awareness to it. And it's like now it's kind of hot and people are like, okay, yes, how can we get more involved? How can we be more diverse? And it's just like, all you got to do is listen, have have certain people have a seat at the table. And I think when it comes to us, we've earned every seat that we have at that table to speak our mind and believe in it. And we have the proof that it, it works. I mean, we had a team in our league that flipped a whole seat. Uh, I think in the Senate, and it's just like amazing, all because they brought awareness to someone. Well, the lady actually part owned a team uh, for whatever reason, <laughs> and it's just like if I feel like if that team, the WNBA, the Atlanta Dream, didn't do that, we it would have been a different outcome. So it's like we we've been we've been we've been true to this now, uh, mm-hmm. and I think that's what makes it that much more powerful because it's like this isn't just an unexpected shock to us. This is what we do. What does it feel like physically when we are perfectly in movement with others? How do we embody this kind of collaboration, feeling of community? For you, if you had to describe the feeling of being in the space where that type of collaboration is happening, um, because, you know, unless you're lucky enough to be the singer that's standing on stage in the middle of, of that or some virtuoso player, you don't know what that feeling is. What, what is that for you? I've only had it a few times, and part of that is because violinists are micromanagers. Like, we have to be. We're so, we're worried about so many things at once. We're worried about all of the notes. We're worried about, for me, I'm in a lot of leadership roles. So part of that is creating contingency plans and, you know, defensively driving through a show. Um, But there have been times when that happens where this there's this release of the worries and uh, being 100% present um that happened to me on tour with Beyonce once the whole time I was present and it was wonderful and it was incredible but so much of it was me approaching it like I do any show, which is like, I'm getting this, I'm getting this, I'm doing this, okay, I'm five, six, seven, eight, and now we're doing, like, it was very much like, I'm going to deliver you a good show. But there are these moments, there was this moment. Um, Technical. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there was this moment with Jay. Um, we were head banging, and I was so hot because the pyro was just very intense in that moment. And I 
it was the summer and I was just like, I don't know. I don't know. Like it was right at that point that I heard something he said, like I caught on to something that I normally didn't because I was normally too busy thinking about the count. I caught on to something he said and I let go. Mm. And I was just, I just felt like screaming. It was like roaring through a show. And it, that was adrenaline, like just out the window. Like that was insane. That was just, that was an incredible feeling. That felt like flying, but... I felt like, I like, so I like anime. <laughs> I like fantasy. And so in that moment, I was like, this feels like something I would watch on a cartoon. Like, this feels like Miyazaki. Like, I don't even know. It just felt out of body. Um, and so that happened. That's also happened during Beethoven 9. Mm. And just the part about the symphony of brotherhood and the first time that I played that and I heard the choir do that, I just was like, I'm not here. It just felt like you're not. And at that point, I was very, um, I was vocally atheist at that point. I was very much angry and um, comfortable in that. And uh, it it's like it cut through that moment that moment cut through everything and I definitely it wasn't like oh I had a religious experience but I did in service to the music and it was like spirituality felt safe again after that experience I love that you just said that I feel like it it saved me in a lot of ways The way that being in community and the discipline of our practice combine to push us, make us better. You know, I think coming from such a strict technical background, I always say that's what taught me discipline. Mm. Um, And you have to have discipline in this industry and to be successful in anything, really. You have to be disciplined. You have to sacrifice things. You have to, you know, commit and and push yourself out of your comfort zone and beyond your boundaries and stuff. And um, yeah, I'm grateful for the 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 strictness of it because it it taught me so much. You know, I, I was always, almost always, when I was in like ballet, ballet very heavy, I was almost always the only black girl. Um, and then I went to Alvin Ailey and I went to Dance Theater Harlem and I went to Dada and I opened, it opened my eyes at this, that happened at maybe 12, 13, 14, like that age. So, um, I was always the black girl, the only black girl before then. And going to those schools, you know, it just felt so welcoming and so, um, you know, for me, I had never been around so many talented people who all looked like me. And so it just made me want to be even better, like the the star of the studio and the school and the company and stuff. So, yeah, it was just so inspiring. Um, but the the strictness and stuff really has given me, you know, the discipline that I need to succeed. Who are we? And what do we create within the smaller spaces we carve out? What do we want to express about ourselves, our own particular vision within the pauses, the cadenzas, 
the ciphers. What is the verse we wish to write out? As an artist, in this moment, what do you find yourself wanting to express in the free spaces that you find in life? You know, what ideas, what notions, where in life do you find your cadenza and, and how do you put forth in that space? Cadenzas, when you think about the structure, the cadenza comes at a point in a concerto. The concerto, the way I explain to people is like the concerto has traditionally three movements it's like chapters in a book you go slow fast slow and in the middle of all of this dialogue between one person and an entire orchestra the orchestra drops out and that's the space for the cadenza and the way I explain it to students is like in hip-hop it's like a cipher like this is your verse this is your chance to show out this is if you have something to say you say it now if you if this is a diss track, it would go here. Like so for me, when and then and then you have the history. And so the cadenza originated and it and it you know, it's what you said. And the irony of that is that in classical, in the history of classical music, traditionally it has been pedagogues who have edited or soloists who have edited cadenzas that people traditionally use so it's become like another piece um the tchaikovsky violin concerto has what is considered to be a standard cadenza which means that everybody who plays that concerto plays it and in its conception a cadenza is really traditionally written by the soloist performing and that's where you get some of these improvisational moments and so when I did this St. George Concerto in 2016, I wanted to write my own cadenza, partly because I wanted to say what I wanted to say, but also because there did not exist a standard traditional cadenza because they didn't care because he's a black composer. Simple as that. Like mm-hmm. the world of academia and music history didn't care and so it doesn't exist. And so when I wrote my own, I included fragments of... Nina Simone's version of Black is the Color and some influences of Fela Kuti. Mm. And I did these things because those are my influences. And then also, I wanted to explore the voice of the Chevalier's mother, who was a freed slave from Guadeloupe. So it's like, what is it like to know that you have birthed this wonder child who can compose faster than Mozart, who predates Mozart, who's teaching Marie Antoinette at court, who's leading the Paris opera? What is it like to experience that after being freed from slavery? What is it like to know that his father is in the French nobility. Like, it's all so... Nobody talks about that. Um, So I use that moment to kind of question and meditate on her life, given what I didn't know about her, um, and also to reflect influences that I consider to be equal. And I speak a lot about cultural equity. Cultural equity is just like you 
in my mind, Fela is on the same level as Beethoven or Bach. There is no better or stronger. It's just Fela is a composer who should be studied at the same rate as you would study white Euro European composers. Megan the Stallion should be studied the same way you study Mozart. Like that's cultural equity to me. That's putting contributions that we make as a culture on the same playing field. That's high art, you know, American folk music, high art. It shares everything with classical music anyway. So for me in life, the cadenza is the part where I can I can represent myself within this uh, creative framework. And I really struggled with that in the past year because I lost so much work. If you were a freelancer who only performed and did not have management and didn't have a team, you just, I just lost everything. And I've had to start over so many times that I was just like, are you kidding me? And I really felt like I didn't fit at all. I was like, I don't know what good I can be because this job is not essential. And you know, it's not treated at the, this way. Um, in coming back, my experience has been so different from my peers um, as far as discovering who coasted through lockdown and who did not, who had help and who did not. So it was a really isolating experience. And I decided to rework the cadenza that I wrote in 2016. I was actually working on it today. Um, and I'm going to, well, I'm in the process of expanding it and making it a standalone piece on its own that can be used um, as the cadenza within the concerto context, but can also be worked on its own and marketed to the mainstream and accessible to the mainstream. Um, but it's it's just, I well, I loved all the questions. I love all the questions, but I really like this one because of the timing. I ha I am I am ironically writing the cadenza again now that I'm in this new space, now that I've spent the last year wondering why I'm doing it, why anything is the way it is, now that we're coming back slowly and things in the industry that I thought would have mm. changed have not. And some of you know, some things have gotten worse. The shock of that and the feeling like as an American citizen without certain um Securities, feeling like I don't fit here socioeconomically, feeling like, why am I an American? I don't know because the country feels like it's beating me up right now, you know, as a woman, as a black woman. Um, so it's all of those things. And in expanding the cadenza, I get a lot, a lot of release of that tension. Um, because it's like, I can't leave this framework. I can't leave this industry. This is every, I've, I've spent so much time. This is it. My name is it. Um, I don't own land. You know, I don't have children. This name is, is the end. And so, yeah, this new material is coming directly out of exploring those themes. And it is, I think, ultimately like, like a Heiligenstadt testament you know or just here's what I'm doing you know just I yeah yeah 
Lessons for movement. Having a seat at the table. A vision for the future. But I love the way that you move through the world, and I love how sure you are of yourself and who you are and how you move. And um, I oh, think it's beautiful. Um, let me ask you this: What do you think, as you have practiced and defined movement for as long as you have? What do you think it has taught you about moving broadly through? Spaces and metaphorically, and what what do you think we can take from you about how to powerfully move between and within spaces, um, but particularly as a black woman, because I do think that mm-hmm. the world makes things so much more difficult for us mm-hmm. at every mm-hmm. turn. Yes, absolutely. Um, you know, it's we all say be bold and be fearless and stuff. And it's easier said than done, but you literally have to be. We have to be as Black women. You know, we have to be fearless. We have to be, we have to stand up for ourselves or else we'll get taken advantage of and walked all over. And so, you know, it's a constant practice um, because sometimes you don't want to be fearless all the time, you know? And you aren't. (laughs) You just want (laughs) to... Yeah, yeah. Sometimes you just want things to come and things to be easy. But I think I think for me being like being my being my biggest cheerleader. You know, you have to be your biggest cheerleader cuz someone's always going to shut down a great idea because they just don't want you to have succeed or they yeah, they don't <laughs> want you to have that idea. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> like, dang, I should have thought of that. I'm about to steal it. You know? So yeah, you have to you have to be your biggest fan and believe in yourself. I have believe tattooed on my hand. Like believe. <laughs> I love that. I have still I rise on my wrist because I and think And I love that. We must remember to to be able and that we can rise again. We can rise again. Yes. We can rise again in spite of every Always. time we are pushed to the ground. And many of the things that you have written and spoken about have been touched on in previous episodes, the disproportionate responsibilities that Black women are asked to carry, the dangerous myth of the strong Black woman, uh, and the weight of being the first. And it's fitting that I, I think we end with you, a leader, a future of the movement. So in your freedom dream, what are the movements that you want to see and create Ooh. I, th- I, th- I think my biggest thing is just like, I think it just goes back on how you touched on just not being unexpected, like knowing that I'm supposed to be here. Like, yes, I, I am here in the flesh. I deserve to be here. And it's not a shock or unexpected, like, whoa, you're, you're here. Yes, I'm also got to, I also have a seat at this table. I think that is my, that's my dream there. And, and, and it even comes down to like, I don't even, I hate when people even compare NBA and WNBA because of course there's no comparison in that sense because we're so different. But even to a sense of just, Yes, this is me. I, I can play basketball, but yet I can also go get my nails done, my lashes done, and still step and look completely different. Like, yes, yes, I can change my hair. Yes, I can have puff one day, sew in another day, braids another day. Like, just to be 
me and to be accepted in that sense and just rocking like that. I think that's the biggest thing. Don't be unexpected knowing that I believe like we deserve to be here as Black women. How I would love to play in an orchestra with Lady Jess, to feel that connection, be in service of a creation, an idea that is bigger than anything else. I want to feel what she has felt in those moments. With her, I want to be a part of the Ormandy strings. I also want to dance with Ashley for our bodies to carry the same rhythms. And I want to step onto the court with Asia, be part of her team, to move the ball together in the same direction towards a unified goal. Each conversation, each woman, each story from this season has moved me towards something essential and closer to those listening, closer to you. And I hope for however many minutes you have felt a part of where we have moved, that you have seen yourself floating in Kalita's waters, heard your own echoes in Lettucey's voice, and found community with and within all of the women. We need ourselves, but we also need each other, surrounded and supported by other communities and filled with love, free and complex, ready to move. Being Seen is produced by Harley & Company and created in partnership with Vive Healthcare.